So, Father, I'm mindful as we, uh, as we come before you, mindful of the parable of the sower, that as your word goes out, um, your word falls on various hearts. There are hard hearts. There are shallow hearts that need the nutrients of the word. There are hearts that seek to be choked out. But, Lord, I'm grateful that you have faithful hearts, fruitful hearts that you have prepared. And so I do pray this word as it goes out that... Uh, it would land, that it would grow, that you would help us to grow in deeper love with you, that we would be in awe of your grace and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please open in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, beginning verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword does not enter their, or their their swords shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundant of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is on his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power 
or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So as we come to this psalm, we need to consider together an important question. Why did God see fit to give us this particular psalm? See, the psalms were never intended just for our private worship, our private prayer journal. The psalms were intended for the people of God when they come together to be able to express our hearts to God. And the psalms shape our understanding. They guide our understanding and what we believe about God. And so this is a psalm of David. And from verse 25, we know that this was written later in David's life. As he said, I have been young and now am old. So this is a psalm all about perspective. David is looking back on the faithfulness of God and he is giving us perspective, which leads us to wisdom. And David begins with, fret not yourself. And this is repeated in verse 7 and 8. Fret not yourself. Fret not yourself. Okay. So I have to admit that um, fret not yourself has never made it into my vocabulary, okay? And when was the last time you used the word fret? In college students, fraternity doesn't count. (laughs) I figured I had a 50-50 chance of that. I think I failed um, on the funniness. But anyway, um, fret not. It's actually a great phrase. To fret means, um, or to not fret means, do not get heated up. Or we may use an equivalent phrase of chill or take a chill pill or just, you know, chill out. Something along those lines. And so what David is doing here in the psalm, in the very beginning, he begins by telling us, take a deep breath and chill. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And this sounds great, right? But this is really difficult because our hearts are prone to fretting. It is easy for us to lose perspective, especially in a fallen world where life does not always seem fair, especially when those who are around us who do not love the Lord and at times who are even hostile to God, they seem to be flourishing and prospering. And that can be very difficult for us as it doesn't seem fair That unbelievers flourish in God's world, right? Especially when we're suffering. And throughout this psalm, there's a contrast that David makes between the wicked and the righteous. And David speaks of the wicked's scheming against the righteous. Look in verse um, verse 12. The wicked are plotting against the righteous. In verse 14, 
The wicked are drawing weapons to slay those whose way is upright. In verse 32, verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Okay, so this may sound a bit extreme to us. This is not our reality usually, but this was David's reality. King David, king over Israel, godless nations were constantly coming against the Israelites, seeking to put him and others to death. But for this, but for us, um, this may be a bit extreme, but we do fret evil in our world and we do fret evildoers in our world. And sometimes the hostility towards us as Christians or the church is aggressive and blatant. At other times, it's subtle. And oftentimes, there's just simply frustration of living in a fallen world where there is evil. But David says, not just fret not yourself because of evildoers. He goes on, be not envious of wrongdoers. Be not envious. Are we ever envious of non-Christians? And what makes you envious of the things of the world? What brings you to envy? And maybe it is when godless people seem to be prospering, whereas we may be suffering. They may be prospering, and, and that can happen in a host of ways, right? Maybe it's those around us that are prospering financially, we're struggling. Prospering in their health, we're not so much. Okay, maybe it's even with raising kids. Maybe we're struggling to raise our kids. And yet we can see homes that seem to be godless that are doing, looks like, a better job. Or that their kids are maybe just more well-behaved. And at times it just seems that others' lives, they just seem to be great. And it begs the question, in God's world, how can that be? If we're seeking to honor and please him and yet there are others who are hostile to God that their lives seem to be great. I've had this experience a number of, a, a number of conversations with college students over the years. I'll give one, but there are, uh, but for this one it represents a lot more. It's college students that are, that are Christians that are seeking to be faithful to God. And they will say to me, okay, if I'm honest, I'm struggling. Because I'm surrounded by non-Christians and they seem to be having such a great time. They're, they're partying, they're enjoying it. They seem to have no guilt, no shame in what they're doing. And they seem like they're having such a great time. And added to this, I remember one conversation with one saying, and I'm working as a Christian, I want to have integrity in the classroom. And I know a bunch of, of my friends who are not Christians that are cheating and they're doing better than I am. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. They seem to have such a great life. And I'm seeking to be faithful to the Lord. Do you ever feel that tension? The danger of envy is that it leads to doubt. Doubting God's character. Is God really? You know, okay, yes, I know God's good. Is he good? No, he's good. But, but is he? And so that envy can lead to resentment at times, especially when we look out and we see Christians suffering and we see the way the Psalm 37 puts it, the wicked prospering. I asked the question earlier why we need this Psalm. And I think we need this Psalm as an individ as individuals and as a congregation because it needs, it reminds us of what is true. It reminds us 
and it speaks to our fretful hearts. And part of what this gives for us is perspective. Perspective on ultimate outcomes of the righteous as well as the wicked. And David gives us a sobering reality of the ultimate outcome of the wicked in verse 2. He says, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And this is the theme that's repeated throughout this psalm. Verse 8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. That phrase cut off is repeated a number of times in this psalm, speaking of the wicked. And that the idea is that there will come a day where the one who was wicked is removed from the people of God, removed from the presence of God. And this psalm tells us, but we are to refrain from anger and forsake wrath. And why? Well, Romans gives us perspective. Romans 12, 19 and 20 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point is, vengeance is not ours. That is the Lord's business. And David is giving us perspective. Do not fret, because God is a just God. He will make all things right. Verse 10 says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Verse 13 says that the Lord laughs at the wicked. And that's a, it's basically a scornful laugh at their folly against God and God's people. The Lord laughs at the wicked. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pasture. They vanish like smoke. The book of Proverbs picks up the same theme and uses uh, very similar language to that of this psalm. In Proverbs 24, 19 and 20, it says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And Proverbs 23, 17 and 18 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. So the perspective of the scriptures, and this psalm in particular, is that our hearts are not to be drawn towards envying the wicked, but our hearts are to be directed towards delighting in the Lord and the things of the Lord because he is good to us. And yet life is discouraging, it is hard, and we suffer, and we have to be reminded, though, we have to be reminded of the end, that evil eventually will be completely cut off. This is sobering. It gives us, on one hand, a sense of peace when we we desire for God to, to right all wrongs, and yet a sense of urgency because we know people who are the wicked, Right? We know people who need to come to a knowledge of the saving grace of our Lord. But there is a sense of peace that we can be sure that God will make all things right. Paige and I, speaking of this sense of peace, so my daughter Paige and I planted a garden about a year ago. And after we planted the garden, it looked great 
But then we did not do much after that. And so, um, I mean, besides the fact that we, we did pick a few cum- cucumbers and I think it was squash and some tomatoes, but the garden got other use. I did notice one day, I'm no detective, but I was able to, to figure out that there was a baseball bat next to the garden and fragments of cucumbers and tomatoes and other things all over the yard. So my boys had a great time with our garden. But as I look at the garden, it was completely stressful because what you have to know about me is I hate weeds. I hate weeds in gardens and landscape. Um, so I would look out every day at this garden and it just, I was, I was just, it was just a bummer. Um, (laughs) but in the last couple of days, um, I've been able to look out over the weeds in the garden and I've really been at peace. And the reason it's all about perspective. A few days ago, I sprayed a chemical on it that will kill them in seven to 10 days, according to the label, right? And so for the garden purist in here, I'm sorry, I get it. I know you're not only supposed to do that, but there is something about when I look at it now, there will be beauty again. Beauty will return. Order will be there. I think in that sense, um, it's okay and it's good for us to long for beauty, to long for the peace that we know is coming from the Lord. And in my office, I have this painting. My college students might laugh at me here because the painting depicts the biblical framework of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And consummation, otherwise known as kaboom. Okay, so and the kaboom is when Jesus returns and makes all things new. But I love this painting because it shows two birds in the center of the painting and it's with a dreary landscape. One of the birds is looking back though at a beautiful tree, at a lush garden, and it's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. But the other bird is looking forward. It's looking forward to what's represented by a tree, but whereas the first one, the Garden of Eden, the tree is contained on the, in the painting. When it looks forward, this, this tree, it goes off the canvas. It's the artist's way of saying, I can't even render this. I can't do justice to it. And, and this really, this really is our longing of, we look back at the garden. Oh, God made such a great and perfect world. And yet sin entered in. Oh, but Christ Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his work in this world. And he's making all things and will make all things new at Jesus' return. And and we should long for that, hope for that. We look for that. So it should give us a sense of peace. But there is also a sense of urgency because of the wickedness in the world. Because behind the wickedness is people, right? Ultimately, Satan stands behind it. And then people who do not know the Lord. And so there is a sense of urgency that we live between the cross and the consummation of all things. And as we live, we are to pray for and pray, proclaim the gospel to those who do not know the Lord, who are wandering away from the kingdom. There's a sense of peace, but also a sense of urgency. And in contrast to the ultimate outcome of the wicked who will be cut off, There's a theme that runs throughout this psalm of the ultimate outcome for the righteous. And that is that they will inherit the land. Look at verse 9. 
For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Do you think the Lord is making a point through David? Do you think David is making a point of the importance and the significance of this land? To inherit the land for the Old Testament, um, for the believer in the Old Testament, it would be this land of Canaan, this promised land, this land of blessing that God offered to his people. It's the land, it's a place of rest. It's a place of security. It's a place where God would dwell with his people, right? It's this land of blessing. And this points for us to an even more glorious land that the scriptures pick up on throughout the Old Testament and into the new that speaks of this new heavens and this new earth, this glorious promised land. Look specifically at verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Does that sound familiar? The meek shall inherit. In Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus essentially quotes from this psalm. And so if you can turn there to Matthew chapter 5, I want us to see a what seems to be a subtle difference. But it is actually an um, a incredibly significant difference between Psalm 37 and Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. So in th- Psalm 37, verse 11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what Jesus does here, is he takes the land and he makes it on a much, gives it a much larger context. Blessed are the meek. They do not just inherit the land. They inherit the whole earth. This is the image of the new heavens and the new earth. And Psalm 37 speaks of the fact that they will delight themselves in abundant peace. And there's this reality in the new heavens and new earth of the whole earth for God's people to enjoy as the Lord dwells with his people. The Sermon on the Mount does not really explain, as Jesus says, blessed are the meek. He doesn't necessarily elaborate on that right there in the Sermon on the Mount. But Psalm 37 is what biblical meekness is all about. Again, when we think of meek, we must not think of weak. Okay? Jesus was perfectly meek. So Jesus talks about blessed are the meek. David refers to, but the meek shall inherit the land. So begs the question, what does the meek person look like? And really, Psalm 37 is a great description of those who are meek. Verse 3, they trust, uh, they trust in the Lord and seek to do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So trust in the Lord. Trust is faith. Right? It's faith in God. It's faith in God's character. It's faith in God's action. And as we enter into the Christian life, it begins with faith, but we never graduate past faith and trust. 
Our lives are called to constantly have faith and trust God. And it is not a blind faith. It is not an empty faith. It is a faith that is that is situated in the context of a covenant-keeping God. I take great comfort throughout the whole scripture of what's referred to as the covenant formula. It's the statement repeated over and over again. I'll make our college students do it again. I will... Oh, no, they need you. I will be your God. You will... I will be your God. You will be my people. What a promise throughout the scriptures. That God has committed himself to us. And he calls us to commit ourselves to him as well. By in trust. And he goes on to say, trust in the Lord and do good. And do good. This is the call of the righteous. To do good in the world. Right? The righteous. Uh, this term, uh, the word in Hebrew is tzadakim. Okay, it appears about 200 times throughout the Old Testament, about 50 times in the Psalm, Psalms, and I count about nine times in this passage that we have this word, the righteous. And essentially the definition could be people who follow God's heart and ways, see everything they have as gifts of God to be stewarded for his purposes. So we are to take all the gifts that God has given us, our time, our talents, our treasures, right? Steward them for God's purposes, to be a blessing in the world. And the assumption is that the righteous are people who are generous, right? Verse, this is a, a theme throughout this psalm as well. Verse 21, the righteous is generous and gives. Verse 25, the righteous is ever lending generously. And verse 16, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked, so this theme of contentment, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many. So on one hand, we are to be content with what we have, but also to be generous with what we have. But what's our generosity rooted in? What's it grounded in? For the Christian, our generosity is grounded in the very grace and in, in generosity of the Lord. And, and the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9. Paul is speaking to the church about being generous with their giving. And the way he roots it is in the gospel. He says, Christ became poor for us. He became poor in the incarnation so that we might become rich. He became poor so that we might become rich. And it's a pattern for our lives of the way the Lord has lavished generosity on us. And we are to be generous people. Time, talents, and treasures. Verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Rather than fret ourselves, we are to delight ourselves. And there's uh, a pastor who wrote a commentary on this, Dr. Boyce, who, who gave, I think, some really good insight. He wrote about the fact that before people come, in, before people come into a relationship with Christ... They resist it because they do not believe God is desirable. And in fact, sometimes the Bible is viewed as just moralistic rules or even harsh. But that's not true for the Christian. Once we enter into a relationship with Christ, we see that God is completely desirable. 
that he's, he is to be desired above all things. It is recognizing that we have stumbled into a great treasure. Boyce goes on to say that for the Christian, sometimes we do not delight in the Lord because we actually do not know the Lord. Or to the degree that we know the Lord is to the degree that we will delight more and more. He puts it this way. The reason so many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know him very well. And the reason they do not know him well is that they do not spend time with him. It's a great call for us to delight in the, word, to delight in the Lord. And to delight in the Lord means that we must know him. And the more that we know him, the more we delight in him. And then this verse goes on. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, so that's the promise attached to this. Delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And so for the righteous, for the Christian, rather than like the wicked um, seeking to live for themselves as the righteous, we, we put our delight in the Lord and we receive from him the desires of our hearts. This doesn't mean that the Lord will grant us any desire we want, right? Uh, as an example of this, so um, a few years ago, actually, it was quite a few, it was quite, it was probably seven years ago or more. I was driving home, our family vacation of Colorado, and it was two in the morning. We got a pretty late start uh, on our way home, and the whole van was asleep, and I was driving. I was at perfect peace. And then all of a sudden, Ty is in his car seat. He can barely talk, but he's able to yell these words. He's like, Dad, I want a donut. Okay, it's two in the morning. So um, wrong desire, wrong timing. And as his father, I did not grant that. And in a similar way, our Heavenly Father, he, he will grant the desires of our heart that match up with his desires and, and it takes maturity and growing in the Lord as our hearts desire more and more the things of the Lord. And then he desires to give those to us in his timing when the desires are right and in the right time. Verse five and six, by the way, if any of you are, um, if you've noticed, we have 40 verses here and I'm on verse five and six. So if you're, so how about this? Fret not. I have a plan. I have a plan. Verse, um, verse five and six, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. That word commit, this is the, this is the idea that carries with it of casting our cares upon the Lord, commit to him, cast ourselves upon him. Okay. This would be similar to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, that we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And this includes everything, that we cast our fears, our resentment, our jealousy, our issues of justice, our questions, our doubts, that we cast ourselves upon the Lord. And this says he will act. He will act. How do we know that he will act on our behalf? How do we know? This is the uh, 
for our college students, this was part of the lesson last week. And so I mentioned to them, I'm not even, I didn't summarize this, summarize it this morning in Sunday school. I was just going to give them the summary right now. How do we know that God will act on our behalf? Because we know that God as our Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is the covenant keeping God. He is a faithful God to us. God has this plan. It's his eternal decrees, meaning he has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a goal for all of history. And God is active in this world. He's active through miracles, right? Miracles would be the extraordinary demonstration of his lordship. And so if an Israelite would come and say, how do we know we can trust God? They would point that Israel to the Red Sea and say, do you remember the miracle? Do you, do you remember God's faithfulness? He's a covenant keeping God. He rescued us in the past. He'll rescue us again. We get to look back at the cross. God is a rescuer. Okay, but not only, not only through miracles, but God's work of the term we would say providence. God's providence. This would be his, the ordinary demonstration of God's lordship. And it's really not ordinary because it's quite spectacular that um, the creator of the universe is personal to us and involved in our daily lives. But providence is this concept. If I can quote Bill, who has quoted Jerry Bridges, providence is God's constant care for an absolute rule over his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. His absolute care for absolute rule over his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. And, and you boil providence down, essentially, it's that we, we can trust in God. He really is. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly powerful, perfectly wise, can b- bring about the best results in our life. This is why when people who are really struggling with an issue as a Christian, we don't say, wow, good luck with that one. No, it's, oh no, God has a plan. And he will work it out for his glory and for your good. And we know that God, his power, he upholds all things. Colossians 1.17 speaks of Jesus. In him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, chapter 3 speaks of Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power. Creation cannot continue, the earth cannot continue to exist apart from the word of of God. And so whatever Hollywood throws at us, we can be confident that the world will not end according to whether it's an alien invasion or a zombie apocalypse or a meteor strike or King Kong taking over first New York and then the rest of the world, right? Um, No, it's much more dramatic than that. That is that Jesus, that God upholds the world and God will When the time is right, Jesus will return to make all things new. He has a plan that cannot be thwarted. And and we're talking about the world and how God upholds it, but it's also personal. It's also personal in the way God upholds our lives. Verse 17, the Lord upholds the righteous. In verse 23 and 24, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the, lo- for the Lord upholds his hand. So, yes, there will be hardships. Yes, there will be struggles. But God upholds the hand of the righteous. 
He really is a personal God. And then all this leads to verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So consider the, pro- consider the progression here. We trust in the Lord. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We commit our ways to the Lord and he will act. And because that is true, we can be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Now, this isn't just be still, like put ourselves in a timeout chair and be still. This is be still before the Lord, waiting patiently for him to act. There's this phrase that runs throughout, um, actually in sections of the book of Revelation. It's a repeated phrase. That is, in this phrase, is patient endurance. Patient endurance is what the saints are called to. That we endure patiently, standing firm in the world, but enduring knowing that God will make all things right when he acts. And when we speak of this reality of patient endurance and being still before the Lord and waiting for him, is this not the posture of prayer? It's being still before the Lord. It's praying. It's casting our cares, our concerns on him, knowing that he will act. And this morning, what are you carrying that you need to give to the Lord? What is on your heart? What is a burden that is too big for you to carry? Be still. Call out to God. Wait patiently for him. But we don't have time for that. Got places to go, people to see, distractions to pursue. Wait patiently. Wait on the Lord. Be still. Okay, I mentioned that this psalm, or that this section, uh, was a description of the meek. And I want to take a moment and just um, quote from the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He speaks of, uh, he, he speaks on this topic of the meek. And here's what he says. He says, again, You who are called to be a meek person, not always standing up for your rights, nor concerned to get your own back, nor troubled in your heart by ill treatment and personal slights. You are simply to commit your cause to God and leave it to him to vindicate you if and when he sees fit. He goes on to say, why are we not free enough from fear and anxiety to allow ourselves to go full stretch in following Christ? One reason, it seems is that our heart, in, in our heart of hearts, we are afraid. We are afraid of the consequences of going the whole way in the Christian life. We shrink from accepting burdens of responsibility for others because we fear we should not have enough strength to bear them. We shrink from accepting a way of life in which we forfeit material security because we're afraid of being left stranded. We shrink from being meek because we're afraid that if we do not stand up for ourselves, we shall be trodden down and victimized and end up among life's casualties and failures. We shrink from breaking with social conventions in order to serve Christ because we fear that if we did, the established structure of, the, of our life would collapse all around us, leaving us without a footing anywhere. It is these half-conscious fears, this dread of insecurity rather than any deliberate refusal to face the cost of following Christ, which makes us hold back 
We feel that the risk of out-and-out discipleship are too great for us to take. In other words, we are not persuaded of the adequacy of God to provide for all the needs of those who launch out wholeheartedly on the deep sea of unconventional living in obedience to the call of Christ. So if you have my disposition, you're starting to check out because a guy is reading to you. Welcome back. He goes on to say, now let's call a spade a spade. The name of the game we're playing is unbelief. And Paul's, he will give us all things right there. He's quoting from Paul in Romans 8, who says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Packer goes on to say, Paul's, he will give us all things, stand as an everlasting rebuke to us. Paul is telling us that there is no ultimate loss or or impoverishment to be feared. If God denies us something, it is only in order to make room for one or other of the things he has in mind. And he finishes with this, or at least I will finish with this. Not the whole sermon, I'm not done yet. Um, Paul's all things is not a plethora of material possessions. The meaning he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see nothing, literally nothing which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? The point there is that the meek are committed to God. But what keeps us from wholehearted obedience at times is fear. Will he adequately provide? And Romans 8 says, yes. Will he not, he's given us Christ. Will he not give us all things? Okay, but the truth is, the reality is, um, we're going to face circumstances that are incredibly hard, incredibly difficult. There will be storms in our life that seem like they're more than we can handle. We'll have waves of sorrow, fear. Life will hit us. It may be our own sin. It may be the sin of others against us that has done incredible damage in our lives. And what hope do we have? What do we need to hear as the people of God? Verse 18, the Lord knows. The Lord knows the day of the blameless. He knows our days. And he has his protectful, his watchful eye on us. The scriptures tell us God does not sleep nor slumber. He knows. He watches. Nothing slips his notice. Not only does he know, but he is with us. Verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his sense. His saints, they are preserved forever. Verse 32 and 33. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power. So because of the love and the grace of God, what we know is the Lord will not forsake us or abandon us. We are preserved forever, and this gives us hope. Hope when we're struggling against real sin in our lives. It's hope when we're wrestling with doubts and fears. It's hope... When we're watching people whom we love really struggling in life, we have real hope. And to quote, um, to quote another pastor, the Savior who ordained your salvation before the, before the foundation of the world, 
who sent his son to live and die for you on the cross, who sent the spirit to claim you as his child, will never let you go. The power of the cross is real. And then let me finish here with verses 39 and 40. I told you not to fret. 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Verse 40. The Lord helps them who help themselves. Yeah, good. Yeah, you caught that. No, that's nowhere in the Bible. It's actually the exact exact opposite. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The Lord saves us and continues to save us all the way to the end. So when we perform uh, weddings at Grace, there is, uh, there's this beautiful prayer. I, I stole it from Bill um, as I completely stole his weddings. Um, and this is from an old, uh, it's an old Presbyterian minister, a prayer, uh, a wedding prayer. And here's the end of the prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It says this. So imagine the couple here, hand in hand, and we're, we're praying over them. And then the end of the prayer is, Then when life is done and the sun is setting, meaning they've had a long life together, when, the li- when life is done and the sun is setting, may they be found then as now, still hand in hand, still filled with joy, still thanking you so much for the other. May they serve you happily, faithfully, together, until at last one shall lay the other in your strong and merciful arms. It's a beautiful prayer. But here's what's beautiful about it. Is that we can only pray this and hope this prayer because of the strong and merciful arms of the Lord who preserves his people. That he holds out hope and he makes good on it. And if we ever doubt that, we just look at the cross. We look at the cross where we see the love of God poured out for sinners. So I want to end with one more passage that I want to read. And you don't even have to turn to it. It's the Beatitudes. It's the Sermon on the Mount. I want to end with Jesus's, with Jesus's Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, Father in heaven, give you thanks for your word to us. Give you thanks that as we gather together, as we open up Psalm 37 for the hope, the ultimate outcomes. Lord, help us to have a great sense of sobriety with the destiny of the wicked. That we would, on one hand, have a sense of peace. That you are making right all wrongs. But on the other hand... 
that there would be a sense of urgency that you would that you would give us grace in the conversations and in the prayers that we would um, pursue those who are wandering from you. And Lord, thank you for this picture of the meek. I pray that we would grow in our meekness of trusting in you, of delighting in you, of committing our way to you, and that we would be still as a people before you, knowing that you ultimately are the one who acts in our lives, who acts in this world. And so thank you that we can have full trust, full assurance that you have saved us and will continue to save us till the very end. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.